Welcome to Talk is Sheep, a podcast by the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia. Join us as we cover conservation updates, tips and tricks to campfire chats. Hey everyone, it's uh, Kyle Stelter here. I'm the past president of the Wild Sheep Society BC. Welcome to episode number two, where Talk is Sheep. And today we're going to talk about all things Moby. Um, we just had a recent event in BC here. We've had two lambs that were put down in the South Okanagan. And uh, again, the disease issues uh, rearing its ugly head here in British Columbia, as it is across uh, many of the landscapes in uh, Western North America. So we're joined today by, uh, of course, Steve Hamilton, my co-host. And we've got uh, Projects Terra from the Wild Sheep Society of BC Chris Barker here and today we have a special guest we're really happy to have Kevin Hurley he's vice president of the Wild Sheep Foundation and has been doing the heavy lifting for wild sheep and conservation for literally decades so welcome everybody um, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to go around the room and Steve uh, talk a little bit about what's going on with you and uh, then we'll pass the torch to Chris and, and finally Kevin. Uh, not much is new up here uh, we finally got some summer here in Prince George so uh for those that don't know me, I am vice chair of the communications committee for the Wild Sheep Society and do a lot of the social media stuff there and Kyle's co-host. So over to you, Chris. Yeah, Chris Barker, past director of the Wild Sheep Foundation. Uh, again, project chair for Wild Sheep Society BC. Um, had a lot of media interviews this week um, around the Moby issue. Um, so just trying to get that amped up towards ag and make that make sure ag actually does starts to move forward they've been dragging their feet a little bit so we need to um just get the public and our members to put some pressure on uh, on our politicians to move forward with this issue sounds good kevin yeah kevin hurley i'm uh living in southwestern idaho where it was triple di triple digit degrees yesterday you can see i got scalded out on the lake with my grandson but uh yeah, I work for the Wild Sheep Foundation. I'm vice president for conservation, uh, 10 years now, but I've been involved for 40 years with the Wild Sheep Foundation in some capacity during my uh, 30 years with the state of Wyoming and then 10 years on staff. So um, I joke that, you know, when wild sheep came across the land bridge, you know, 13,000 years ago, I was right behind them. So <laughs> I've been at this a while, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to participate and, and obviously, British Columbia holds a special place in my heart. Well, Kevin, you've done a ton of work for uh, Wild Sheep. Uh, just can you give us a little bit of your background in Wyoming, what you're doing there in the state and uh, and your history with the state of Wyoming there? Yeah, so I, I like to say it's 44 years since I finished my undergraduate degree and been a wildlife biologist since then. Uh, of course, I dealt with everything with the state of Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Uh, I always joke from mice to moose and wolves to waterfowl, but Mountain sheep and mountain goats were always a particular interest to me. And so I did my graduate work at the University of Wyoming, working on what was called the trout, or what is called the trout peak, big orange sheep herd located between Cody and Yellowstone Park. And so 
that uh, was really my uh, baptism into the wild sheep world. And it was funded by FNAS, which is the foundation for North American wild sheep. Um, now we do business as the Wild Sheep Foundation, but we have a 45 year history and I've been involved 40 of those 45 years. So uh, I do go back a ways with the outfit. I appreciate that, Kevin. So um, Kevin, you know, I think there's a bit of a misunderstanding uh, by the general public about uh, wild sheep numbers. Um, you know, some people think they're healthy. You know, it's something we don't normally see in BC here. It, you might get the opportunity to see some driving through the Rockies or on the Alaska Highway going up north, but uh, uh, wild sheep have had quite a pendulum. They've uh, had strong numbers and then they were weakened and stuff. Can you give us a bit of a history of historic numbers of wild sheep dating back centuries and then modern day numbers and where we're sitting? Sure, and of course nobody can go back and you know validate the estimates from you know early times, but you know in in 1920s there was a famous naturalist. Uh, here in the States called Ernest Thompson Seton. And Seton came out with an estimate that, you know, was based on his observation and people he had talked to. Obviously, he didn't survey everything, but he projected one and a half to two million wild sheep in the West. And, you know, with what we know now about fine scale habitat selection, et cetera, um, there's some folks that are working on modeling, you know, truly what was that number. And so if one and a half to two million is high, um, it's probably safe to say there were a million plus. And so um, now for bighorn sheep, which includes both Rocky Mountain and Desert Bighorn, and Rocky Mountain being um, taxonomically equivalent to California Bighorn, Ovis canadensis canadensis, there's probably fewer than 90,000 90, bighorns in all the Western states, Alberta and British Columbia, and the six states in Mexico. So um, if you look at Seton's estimate of one and a half to two million bighorns in the West, you know, say we're even at 100,000, which would be generous, we're at a fraction of what was here historically, you know, at best 10% of historic range. And you look at a lot of the big game animals in the West that were, you know, driven down in numbers by westward expansion. Um, those have all made a comeback. The two that haven't, in my opinion, and a lot of others share this feeling, are bison and bighorns. And so elk, deer, whitetail, mule deer, pronghorn, wild turkey, you know, they've all come back, but bison and bighorn continue to struggle. And so some of the earliest maps were put together um, in the States in the mid-1950s by a guy from California named Helmut Buchner. And it's really an incredible set of maps. And of course, back then they used a big thick crayon to draw maps versus now it's fine scale digitized GIS type capability that didn't exist then. But if you look at a snapshot in time, over time, you can see rather wide, really wide distribution of bighorn sheep, even into states like the Dakotas, Nebraska, and then by the 1950s, they shrunk down. There were probably fewer than 25,000 bighorn left westwide. And now we've climbed back almost three to four times that, but a long ways yet to go. And so Wild Sheep Foundation and all of our chapters and affiliates and the Wild Sheep Society of British Columbia is one of our most active affiliates. We have probably 30 sheep specific chapters and affiliates. Um, 
you know, our motto, our mission, our purpose is to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain. And so in the early days, we spent a lot of our resources transplanting sheep in places like Alberta and British Columbia, which were blessed with a lot of bighorn sheep. They did some in-province movements, but they were also generous enough to share their bighorn resource with many of the Western states. And so if you look at a mapping project that, that I started in 1996, that it took 19 years to finish, um, we've got records and maps of every wild sheep translocation ever done. And British Columbia has been incredibly generous. Uh, in fact, California bighorn that occur in seven states all started from the junction herd at Williams Lake back in the 1954, the year I was born. So um, BC has been an incredible partner for bighorn restoration, attempted bighorn restoration in the Western US. So um, one of the things that I key in on is in Northwestern Wyoming, where I spent 30 plus years working on sheep. They talk about the sheep eater Indians, you know, the mountain Shoshone and Tukadika is the, the name of their peoples, but their whole culture evolved with and around bighorn sheep. They hunted them, you know, they drove them into pits, they, they harvested them, they made weapons like horn curl bows. They, all their clothing was made from really fine leather. Um, the food, the implements, you know, spoons, ladles, whatever, their whole culture depended on mountain sheep in what, what are called the Absarica Mountains. And so when you think about the early mountain men, when they went through and wrote down journals and diaries, um, they talked about, you know, uncountable numbers of bighorns in certain parts of the greater Yellowstone. And I would imagine there were portions of British Columbia just like that. Unfortunately, that's not the case today. So Kevin, what uh, you mentioned that, you know, we're, we're back to that, you know, maybe close to 100,000 bighorns now. What uh, what was the demise? You said, you know, as low as 10,000 or 20,000, I think the number you quoted. What was that demise? What, what's the main contributor to that? And then, and why the success? Uh, obviously, Wild Sheep Foundations played a role in that in their chapter and affiliates, but, but what precipitated the decline, do you think? And then what, why the success recently? If you go back through the literature, there's three things that keep popping up. One is unregulated harvest. You know, a lot of these bighorns lived in uh, river, you know, valley bottoms, canyons, etc. cetera. Uh, when railroads went through, you know, it took a lot of game meat to feed, you know, a man camp of you know, a thousand workers on a, on a rail line. And so unregulated harvest certainly was, it's viewed as a component of why wild sheep numbers went down. Another one has to do with forage competition. You know, for a long time in the niche that they occupy, bighorn sheep didn't really have um, more mouths to compete with. Well, when livestock came west, both cattle and domestic sheep came west, you know, to, to open up the west and, and settle the west, if you will, there were all, all of a sudden millions more mouths on the ground looking for that same grass forage. And so forage competition certainly had to play a huge role, but one that we didn't really know about, that I think if we knew then what we know now, maybe it would have panned out differently, but there are some 
respiratory bacteria that domestic sheep and goats can carry and can transmit that they do affect domestic sheep somewhat in terms of weight gain, things like that, lamb survival. But when those same pathogens are transferred to wild sheep, they're pretty lethal, you know. And so an analogy I've drawn has to do with Native Americans. You know, when those early settlers came west, you know, European ancestry, they brought things like chickenpox, smallpox, cholera, pathogens that the Native Americans had no natural resistance to. And look at the impact that that had on, you know, tribes around the West. And so I think it is analogous that, you know, wild sheep, in, at least in North America, are not that old when you think about how long they've been here across the Bering Land Bridge. If you look at old world wild sheep in China, Mongolia, Russia, a lot of the countries that are now in Central Asia, they probably have had thousands of years of contact and exposure to grazing animals, domestic goats, domestic sheep, you know, wh whatever over in, in the old world. And I think it's relatively new, you know, maybe 150 years of exposure here. And so what we see is, and it's not absolute, and I heard a great analogy one time, you know, who all, raise your hand if you've ever smoked a cigarette. Well, I have smoked some cigars after some wildfires and we thought we were in Fat City making hazard pay and, you know, drinking beer and smoking cigars. Has everybody that ever smoked cancer died of lung, or smoked a cigarette died of lung cancer? No. And so does every time there's contact between a domestic sheep and a wild sheep result in a die-off of bighorn sheep? No. But the preponderance of evidence says it's a serious, serious consequence for bighorns. And so there's so many pathogens, and I'm not a parasitologist or a microbiologist. I'm a wild sheep manager. I've been that for my adult life. And so here's my simple-minded read of this is, and I heard a great analogy from a colleague, and I, I won't identify her at the moment, but she said, imagine going into a bar. You know, the four of us are going to go in and have a beer. Well, at the door, there's probably a bouncer, and he's going to be checking IDs, you know, making sure a guy like Steve is over 21 and has his ID with him. So the bouncer is going to be the first gatekeeper, if you will, to let people into that bar to have a beer. And, and I've got some great jokes, but I won't spend time on those right now about four guys walked into a bar. But that bouncer, if you know somebody comes in that can knock the crap out of that bouncer, and all of a sudden that bouncer is laid unconscious at the door of that saloon, everybody can come in. And so the analogy, again, is that uh, mycoplasma ovidomoniae, to me as a setup artist, it is the bacteria that, you know, knocks out that bouncer, and then the door's wide open for other things to come in, and what MOV does, that's the abbreviation for mycoplasma ovidomoniae, you know, if, if one of us has a cold, or thank God, hopefully no coronavirus, but if one of us has an, you know, infection, a cold, and, and you want to 
cough something up and spit it out, in your windpipe, there's all these little beating hairs called cilia. And so that's what helps you know, work this stuff up out of your lungs and helps you expel it. Well, MOV, that bacteria, what it does is it collapses or paralyzes those little beating cilia. So they just hang limp. So anything that goes in the windpipe sinks and they can't expel it. And so if you have, like imagine these two lambs at Vessel Lake that had to be put down, chances are the lower lobes of their lungs are consolidated with fluid. And when you, you know, when a wildlife vet does a necropsy or a sheep manager opens one up and looks at it, you can see the lower lobes of the lung are just full of fluid. And they talk about it being 15% um, consolidated or 40% consolidated or 90% consolidated. But just imagine drowning in your own bodily fluids. That scares the crap out of me. I have a year and a half old grandson that I'm trying to help teach swim and I do not take my eyes off him in the pool but I think good God if he went under imagine the feeling and I'm not anthropomorphizing the sheep but they drown in their own bodily fluids they cannot expel that and so their pulmonary capacity is reduced and they're just so compromised that you know say there's a coyote or a golden eagle or a mountain lion or something comes along they're easy prey so it, it's not only a direct mortality, but there's, again, it facilitates indirect mortality. So the, the tragedy of this is, you know, bighorn do have their own die-offs, bighorn on bighorn transmission, it happens. But those tend to be quite a bit less in terms of significance, you know, mortalities, you know, maybe 10 or 15% of a population may, may suffer and die. But when some of these respiratory bacteria get in, it can wipe out an entire bighorn population. You know, there have been many examples around the West, US and Canada, and I would gather Mexico, if data had been available, where bighorns are wiped out because of these periodic respiratory pneumonia outbreaks. And then the really compounded tragedy is that if an animal, survives a bighorn say you survives she might be a carrier and she might shed that bacteria for years and so any subsequent lambs that she might have or you know her sisters and their lambs you know they can spread that beyond one year's occurrence so you know some researchers have coined the term super shedders so that every time an animal is tested they're positive they're shedding mov bacteria and perhaps other respiratory bacteria as well and so it's really frustrating and and uh, there's a lot of work going on including good work in the province to try and figure out how to identify those super shedders those chronic shedders of mov and if you can somehow remove them from the population you know, it's kind of like the typhoid Mary analogy from the Middle Ages. Get rid of those that are most infective. And do you get a bump in lamb production, lamb survival? Perhaps. It's been shown in South Dakota. It's being worked on in Hills Canyon between Oregon, Idaho, Washington. It's helping on the Fraser there in the province. So there's a lot of good work 
trying, but it's 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 a defensive reaction to a contact that should have been avoided in the first place. So Kevin, there's two things I want to go back to, but the first one, uh, can, you, can you just back it up? So we're talking lots about MOB now, which um, obviously is the biggest offender for us currently, but um, in your 40 years on the landscape, there's been an evolution. So there's been a ton of work done by the University of Western Washington, Dr. Tom Besser, Dr. Shree, we're very involved with uh, on the science end of things. Can you just talk a little bit to the science and the evolution? Uh, I know Moby does date back to the 70s. I think it was documented in Australia in the 70s, perhaps, is what I've seen. But um, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the science aspect? And, you know, I think a lot of us, me included, um, here at Moby, and we think that that's the only thing that are affecting wild sheep, but we know. Uh, that's not true. So could you talk a little bit about the history and the evolution that you've seen and maybe a little of those early days and how how the science has evolved a little bit in your eyes since the, in that time? Sure. And so I think this coronavirus, COVID-19 pandemic that we're all dealing with fallout and hopefully none of you guys have had family or close friends that have succumbed. My little grandson was positive for COVID, but he's out of it. And you know, he's 20 months old and old boy. But the point I'm making is look at the diagnostic techniques that exist now compared to 1970, 50 years ago. And so a lot of the samples that were taken from sick or dead bighorn 30, 40, 50 years ago, the technology and, and the ability to detect those pathogens simply didn't exist like it does now. I mean, there's all kinds of genetic markers, you know, looking at what's called PCR analysis, it, you know, it, it's too long of a term to even try to explain, but, you know, there's um, antibodies, you know, so the diagnostic ability has evolved through time, and what's really enlightening, and fortunately, the province, Dr. Helen Schwantcher, who's been the wildlife veterinarian for British Columbia for, you know, I'm, I first met Helen in 19... 86 so at least 35 years she has a lot of archived samples from the old days you know when there were sick or dead bighorns found and hopefully if there's blood or um, tissue material that can be rerun now it would be interesting to know you know did they have what we think they have now but we just couldn't detect that 20 30 40 years ago and so every year uh, the technology advances. You know, I think Dr. Besser at Washington State University, he's retired now, Dr. Shri before him, um, have done remarkable work, they and their students, to the point of, you know, some handheld, you know, and I'm holding up my iPhone, you know, a little unit and gizmo this big, that it's kind of like Dr. McCoy in Star Trek, you know, you could hover that over the patient and tell what was wrong. And so this biomeme unit that I know was deployed in the on the Fraser project by um, the BC folks is, you know, there's still glitches, but it's incredible technology now that we didn't have then. And so for a long time, the biggest thing when I remember when I started was stress-induced pneumonia and the whole lungworm pneumonia complex. And they talked about the lungworm called protostrongylus stylizae, which was something they could detect back then. They couldn't detect a lot of the um, fine diagnostic uh, analytics that they can do now. And so 
you know, I remember reading early on about in Wyoming, thousands of dead bighorn up a place called the Grable River. And the outward manifestation was seropties or scabies. It's a mange caused by mites in the ear canal. And so I know British Columbia and the state of Washington are dealing with that along the Snoqualmie and the border on either side of the international border. But that's an obvious one. It's an, it's an external parasite. And so Helmut Buchner's 1960 monograph on bighorn of the U.S. talked about, you know, the reports of thousands of dead bighorns up the Grable River. They died from the scab. Well, the scabies was manifested, but they had no way of looking internally and seeing what the lungs looked like. And so it, it's, it's exciting. It's, it's frustrating. You wish we knew all that we needed to know about it. It's still not an exact science. There's a lot of questions about it, but I think it's safe to say, and I heard this you know, by one of the former uh, specialists that worked on this, is you know, a, a simple equation that you know, domestic sheep plus bighorn sheep equals dead bighorn sheep. That was his abbreviated formula. You know, and it, it's, it's probably not that grim, but it's probably not too far off either. And so there are adverse consequences when contact occurs. Maybe it's mild. Maybe it's like smoking that cigar. You know, it didn't kill me, but it might have weakened me. But I think there's a lot of um, awareness now on the part of not only the agencies, the researchers, but I think on the part of um, sportsmen and women, conservationists who you know, keep reading about this stuff. And it's like, oh my God, this is happening again. So the province, for example, has gone through, you know, the South Okanagan die-off and then, you know, chasm, look at that herd has dropped by 90% or more. You know, the Fraser is, is a fraction of what it was historically. And, and now this new one at, at Basso Lake in the Penticton Valley um, or in the Penticton area, it's really frustrating. You know, we're 45 years in the making. We started out to put and keep, to put wild sheep on the mountain. About 10 years ago, we morphed our mission statement to say, to put and keep wild sheep on the mountain. We don't want to just transplant them. There have been 15, 1600 different transplants, probably 23,000 bighorns that have been moved between jurisdictions through time. So it's an important management tool, but you can't just keep rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic without saying, whoa, 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 time out. What is causing this problem? And repeatedly it indicates contact between domestic sheep or goats and wild sheep usually lead to adverse consequences for wild sheep. Okay, um, good, Kevin. Um, on that note, so, we have this, let's talk a little bit of Moby uh, now because it, it uh, obviously is coming up as one of the biggest offenders in addition to these other diseases that uh, sheep have been exposed to. But is there any sign of a cure? Is there anything that, like obviously separation, you're referring to that and clearly that's the best scenario, but that's one of the challenges that we're dealing with in our, our wild sheep community, which we'll talk to later. But um, do we have any cures? Is there anything we can do? Is there anything that's been effective in combating Moby? You know, look at COVID, everybody's holding their breath, waiting for a vaccine. 
to come out and look at the trials that are underway and probably dozens of companies globally trying to come up with a vaccine. It's my understanding that there are no vaccines for MOV and, and pastorulosis, respiratory pneumonia in bighorn. There have been some trials done, including some work in British Columbia to try and treat uh, domestic sheep and clean them up, so to speak, you know, get rid of these pathogens, uh, especially in a high risk context scenario. But I think it needs a lot more work, replicate trials, publication, peer review, you know, critical review. That's how science advances. Is people you know, do a project, gather some results, test some hypotheses, publish about it, and then everybody else takes a shot. And if they can replicate it or they can tear it apart, that's how science and knowledge advances. And so I think we know a whole lot more about uh, respiratory pneumonia in bighorn sheep than we did certainly 40 years ago when I started. But uh, it's not absolute crystal clear. But I think, you know, one of the things that I have always thought about is more likely than not, or the preponderance of evidence suggests, you know, is it ironclad? Is it foolproof, bulletproof, 100%? Maybe not, but it's more likely than not that this keeps happening when contact occurs between domestic sheep or goats and wild sheep. And it scares the hell out of me and many others. You look at the stone sheep in British Columbia, you know, recent taxonomic genetic work says stone sheep occur in British Columbia some in the Yukon, but British Columbia has, in my mind, a global responsibility to manage for stone sheep and protect their habitat. And so one of the things that I'm aware of was, you know, uh, uh, and, and if I butcher the acronym, I apologize, but a government action regulation, a GAR order for the northern part of the province that said on crown land, there won't be domestic sheep or goats or other critters that can harbor and transmit these pathogens allowed on you know, somebody's place or certainly on crown land within, I think, 50K of occupied stone sheep or mountain goat range. Mountain goats also are susceptible to these pathogens. So um, I think there's been a lot of uh, uh, an awakening, a wake-up call in the last seven to 10 years for doll sheep and stone sheep, thin horn sheep, managers and advocates, uh, it's like, we don't ever want them to go down the same path that Bighorn have in the Southern provinces and then the Western states. And so um, I think it's incumbent on every jurisdiction. And there are 21 jurisdictions in the US and Canada that have wild sheep in them, plus six states in Mexico. So there's 27 states, provinces, and territories that have wild sheep. And and that's one of the things that we've tried to advocate for is cooperation, sharing of data, sharing of information. You know, right now, Texas is going, undergoing a respiratory pneumonia die-off in Desert Bighorn along the Rio Grande. Um, and so information that maybe British Columbia has come up with that could share and help Texas is really beneficial. You know, things that California has found out maybe benefit North Dakota as well. So. Um, I'm really excited by what we've learned, but I'm personally 
you know, I plan to live forever, but in case I get that wrong, I'd sure like to see something happen in my lifetime, you know, to address this situation and realize, and this is a mantra of mine, and I am a multiple use public lands advocate, there is room on the landscape for both domestic sheep and wild sheep, but it cannot be together, is how I roll and what I advocate for. Fantastic, Kevin. Um, well, that's, that's great information. Uh, just one last question for you here before we let you go. Um, what's, what have you seen historically has been the biggest die off or, or sort of worst case scenario that you've seen in wild sheep um, across the landscape, whether BC or, or otherwise, um, maybe numbers wise or well, percentage wise? I know there's lots of cases of that where there's been all age die offs, but what have you kind of seen as a worst case scenario uh, for wild sheep? You know, a classic example is Hell's Canyon, shared between the states of Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. You know, there was a, a bighorn die-off that started there in the mid-90s, either 95, 96, or 96, 97. But, you know, it's incredible country. It's, it's you know, we had one of our former board members that estimated, oh, you, know, you could have 10,000 bighorn in Hell's Canyon. And I think numbers are around seven, 900, perhaps. So, again, a fraction of what's possible. Um, you look at the last three to five years in the Mojave Desert, you know, for a long time, Desert Bighorn didn't have to deal with this. They damn sure are now. And there's been huge die-offs and reduction in wild sheep numbers in the California and Nevada portions of the Mojave and even Northwestern Arizona in the Black Mountains. And so, you know, bad pun, but, you know, you could blindfold and throw a dart. And I think any jurisdiction that's had wild sheep None of them have escaped this. And so British Columbia, you know, I, I thank goodness for what BC has and what it's held on to, you know, and, and Alberta. But as we all know, both those provinces are changing, you know, and people are coming in and, and uh, things are not what they were a hundred years ago. And, and so we just all need to do our damnedest to hold on to this resource. And again, it's so frustrating when you think about the comeback that elk, whitetail, mule deer, pronghorn, turkeys have had, but bison and bighorn, they're still struggling. And so, um, you know, die-offs keep happening. I, I, I can't close my eyes and visualize a single jurisdiction that has not experienced a respiratory pneumonia die-off to some extent. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, that's good information. So obviously lots of doom and gloom around disease. Are there any beacons of light or hope out there that you see anything that on the horizon or, or, you know, have you seen any, any cases where you're um, pretty excited about things? Um, anything out there that gives you, you hope for the future with wild sheep? Yep. Yeah, there are, you know, if not, I'd have a hard time getting up in the morning and going to work every day, but um you know, some jurisdictions are doing really well, like uh, Nevada, for example. You know, they probably have more wild sheep in Nevada than any other jurisdiction I'm aware of. And yet they're only maybe less than one third of their historic range is currently occupied. So I think there's great opportunity for growth, you know, and so just joking, but somewhat serious, you know, take a look at Clark County where Las Vegas sits, you know, you're not going to roll the clock back and undo all the housing around Las Vegas. And so, you know, there are certain places that are no longer suitable for wild sheep, but to us in the wild sheep foundation and the wild sheep world, 
where there is still historic and still suitable habitat, that's where we should focus on to try and get populations either started or augmented if they're struggling. And so, yeah, one of the biggest uh, positives I'll take out of it is I think just the awareness and the interaction between our, you know, our agencies and the publics that are interested in wild sheep, you know, wasn't that many decades ago when, you know, we really didn't have much of a presence. Um, social media, like podcasts, Zoomcasts, you know, are incredible at disseminating information. You know, I think British Columbia came up with a really good app for your smartphones that, you know, if you see mountain goat kids or you see bighorn lambs or stolen lambs, um, Bill Jackson, some of the IT people with the ministry came up with a really good app that's widely used. And, you know, so, you know, citizen engagement, you know, advocate engagement, to me, is really encouraging. You know, as I read the things on whatever social media that I follow, and I'm not a high-end user, but it's really encouraging that so many, obviously younger than me, but so many young people are clued in now and hear about this stuff. And it's like, well, damn it, we don't want this to happen sort of on our watch. Uh, what can we do? And so to me, just the level of interest in wild sheep conservation across the Western US and Canada, and even in Mexico, where there's been a lot of effort to turn sheep loose, not high fence, but back into open range, let them live on that mountain that they're supposed to. And to me, that's what I take the greatest uh, uh, motivation from is everybody's interest and willingness to do the hard work, but also ask the hard questions and expect accountability from our government agencies, whether they're state or federal or provincial. Fantastic, Kevin. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking the time to meet with us today. And uh, uh, on behalf of, you know, all wild sheep advocates, I, I just can't thank you enough for all the work that you do as vice president of the Wild Sheep Foundation and what you've done the last 40 years. And just our hats off to the Wild Sheep Foundation for their leadership in the conservation arena. And and just on a more of a uh, regional level, thank you for your support with the Wild Sheep Society of BC. You're a life member, a monarch member, and you're always the first to step up to support us in our initiatives. So can't thank you enough. And uh, thank you for taking the time to meet with us today. We're going to let you get back to your Sunday afternoon and appreciate all your time. All right. I'm proud to be a member of the society and I appreciate all that you guys do. And so keep it up. I'll help any way I can. I figure I'm just getting warmed up after 40 years. <laughs> Fantastic. Have a great day. Thanks, Kevin. All right. Well, that uh, was an excellent introduction to uh, disease and uh, some of the issues facing the wild sheep community. And uh, Kevin's very knowledgeable in BC as well. But uh, Chris has been doing a ton of work here uh, at the uh, legislature and working with agriculture on uh, wild sheep. And, and um, we're working on a few things that we're going to roll out in the next uh, day or two here as well. So we're going to jump into what's going on in BC on the on the disease front. So. Uh, Chris, if, uh, if you don't mind, let's, uh, let's just jump into what you've been doing. Um, you and I have been working closely with uh, the Minister of Agriculture. We've been meeting with uh, Lana Popham since I think April of 2017 was our, actually it was April 2018 was our first meeting uh, with the Ag Minister. And um, we've got a lot of support there from, from her and she's been very proactive and very willing to meet with us. So we're really thankful there. So why don't you just talk about the work that we've done there and, and the engagement we've had there and, and sort of where things are headed in that direction. Yeah. Just before I jump into that, Kyle, I just, um, just 
too bad Kevin jumped off there, but I was just going to say that a lot of the disease research has been funded by wild sheep advocacy groups, WSF, through Washington State University. And, um, you know, I think that's, you know, kind of where we're going to lead into is, is where does government fit into this and how come they haven't stepped up? How come they haven't been part of that research or how come they haven't done those dollars? Why have they left it to an NGO to do that? Um, and I think that comes back to exactly where we're going to dive into is, you know, where we've been with ag. It's, um, I often joke, I've educated two or three ministers, some ADMs, um, you know, you go through that and you, you think well, Kevin's response too, right? 20 years we've been doing this. So why can't we get the politicians to actually act on this? So I think, you know, with what, um, what we're doing and where we're going in the campaign we're looking at doing is going to help move that dial forward a bit but um exactly like you said kyle minister pop has been fantastic to deal with i think covid came along at the wrong time for sheep in the sense that it um ag had to focus on some other issues um but coming to where we have we have a strategic group that's set up that's made up from plenary staff ag staff um, one representative from the domestic sheep federation one member from the Goats Federation, and then ourselves as a wild sheep NGO, and then Jeremy Ayo, the sheep separation coordinator, along with um, with ag staff, actually set up the meetings and starting to drive, hopefully towards some policy and regulation. Right now, we've just compiled a document. Um, ag paid for Kezia Manlove to do a, a comp compile all the documentation and most of the science that was out there. And that documentation just came out. So that's a piece, a piece of the puzzle. It was one of those knowledge gaps that was identified. We should see that at the beginning of September. And once we have that, that may start to drive some, hopefully some direction of what we can to do, what we can do to sep you know, either separation or get producers on board or not, you know, to have their sheep in certain areas or high risk areas. So it'll be interesting to see where that policy component goes. That's the abbreviated version of it. So Chris, let's talk a little bit about um, what we're looking for as a society. So there's actually two components. There's a Northern component um, and Kevin referenced that with the GAR order, the government action regulation order. Um, so there's that component, which is actually a Flinrow issue. Um, I believe uh, I'm correct in saying that. And then we all also have the egg issue, which is more of a Southern issue, right? So, um, can we kind of talk a little bit about what we're looking for in, in those two areas? And, and um, when we get in the GAR order, I've got a few questions for you around that as well. So maybe talk about Southern BC and what's happening there and what we're looking for, what we want to see from the Ministry of Agriculture, what we're after. Yeah, and I think, you know, when our first discussion started with Ag, they actually started to look at Finhorn sheep because maybe that low hanging fruit, but, um, you know, exactly what you said Kyle everything down south from the Kootenays over to the Fraser is highest risk of contact so one thing that we've asked and I'm not sure how it's going to fall out but we kind of looked at it is if there's an existing farm in a high risk area what mitigation tools can we use in that area to make sure that producer is going to be successful but we don't endanger any of our wild sheep and that's the biggest struggle because basically they're all on winter habitat, right? So as those sheep come off the mountains and into that winter range or the rut takes place, that's a, you know, a higher risk of contact. You come into the South Okanagan, the sheep aren't very high. They're all in the valley. 
well, the valley is pretty well full from Vernon down to the U.S. border. So those sheep are almost a little bit like mule deer. They kind of come into the residential components um, between Penticton and O.K. Falls. Um, so how do you mitigate somebody that's got two or three sheep? Like, and that's it, you know, identifiers. And, you know, I've asked for, one thing I have asked for is some clarification around what determines a producer and what determines a hobby farmer. Because to me, in my mind, a producer, that's going to be a harder one to deal with. There's going to be more impact on a producer. If it's somebody that's got sheep um, to do X, and I guess I could dive into that classic example. There was a gentleman that we worked with that had three sheep on his property to keep the grass down. So the first thing that um, was suggested, oh, we got to fence the guy's property. Um, so I said, well, has anybody talked to him? He said, no. So I went talk to, I talked to the gentleman. We came up with a solution. Um, and again, we just got the pictures, I think two days ago, right? Of uh, 36 sheep going on that gentleman's property where those three domestics were. So that's the kind of stuff we need to determine is how do you deal with the people that have two or three sheep or whether it's, I don't want to use 4-H as an example because I don't think we've ever had any issues with 4-H, but it could be potentially some of those things where um, you know, there's 4-H in an area and potentially they're in a high-risk zone. So we want to look for a high-risk zone, a medium-risk zone, and a low-risk zone. High-risk, if there's sheep living there, you're going to be in a high-risk zone. Medium-risk, you could be separated by a geographic river, mountains, whatever. Um, and kind of touching onto the draw order, we kind of took that 50k buffer. Well, we're not going to get 50k down south between domestic sheep and wild sheep, so that's where that amendment kind of comes in and those risk zones filed. So that's the biggest thing I think we could look at for our sheep down south along the Fraser. Um, to me, in my mind, if we go do go through what we're doing and the amount of money we've spent trying to clear Moby out of those wild sheep. We almost need an exclusion zone along the Fraser River corridor on both sides of that river in order to make sure that those sheep stay safe. So, how many domestic producers, um, hobby farmers, would that affect? So, if you had an exclusion zone, let's say you ran a, a 50K exclusion zone along the Fraser, how many people is that affecting? Is that going to push people out of there? Or how, how does that work? What does that look like, Chris? So, what, from what we know right now, I'm saying, of course, it's evolving because people, you know, COVID changed some dynamics where, you know, people got cheaper boats because they needed something or they wanted something to do or keep their kids busy. Um, but as far to our knowledge, we're not knowing any sheep along the Fraser Corridor right now. I just did get an email today about some sheep in Clinton that are really close to some ewes and lambs. Um, and again, the report was, again, this is not substantiated, but there was ewes and lambs there and the fellow drove through and then there's no lambs there now, it's just the ewes. So anyways, that's kind of off topic, but I don't think it would affect that many producers. Um, it could be the person that has goats that are making cheese or they're doing their odd, you know, they, they like lambs, so they've got one or two lambs to raise them up and then they slaughter them for meat in the fall. So. That's the ones that we're not catching. Those large producers, they're not moving around, so they're kind of set up. So it's those unknown two or three that are there um, that we don't know about. So from Little Wet to Williams Lake, there's gonna be something that we don't know about, Kyle, but 
maybe 10, maybe 15, I'm not 100%. And there's policies that we can put in place, right? Um, they, they, people can be grandfathered that uh, if they have existing sheep, they're grandfathered. And again, we talk about this low, medium and high risk. If there's a high risk farm, there's policies that we can put in place, like maybe testing um, and make sure that there is no MOV or other diseases in these sheep. Um, and, you know, if they have a healthy herd and, and uh, there is interaction, but there's no disease, then our wild sheep are, are still protected by it, right? So, and that's something we'd be willing to work with uh, ag on. Obviously, we put some skin in the game, I think, in that scenario where we have a, you know, we've worked, I think the Wild Sheep Society of BC has a pretty strong track record when it comes to wild sheep and domestic sheep and working with domestic producers. Um, and of course, we've supported the 4-H program, which we're a big believer in as well. So um, I think there's an opportunity for us to work together and, and come up with solutions, right? But uh, Right now, there's no policy, there's no framework. Somebody could go and set up shop in uh, the South Okanagan in prime wild sheep habitat and have a flock of movie infected domestic sheep, and there's nothing to stop them from doing that, right? So that's obviously a concern for us, um, and that's one thing we'd like to address. Yeah, and uh, exactly, that's exactly what Adam at the Chasm filed. There was 125 sheep, and the guy set up domestic sheep farm right there. Um, you know, and here we, you know, two years later, there's a die-off, and like I said, there's 15 sheep left, and no biomarker. So that's that's exactly the concern we're talking about. So with the government, if we set up, uh, if they were to identify low, medium, and high risk in the southern in southern BC, uh, what would we be looking for in those high-risk region, regions areas? What would we be after? Are we after fencing? What, what what sort of protocols would we like to see ideally? you know, basically and, and ideally legislated a policy or a framework around that where, you know, it has some regulation around it. What, what do we want to see? What's ideally, what are we after? I think you touched on it right off the bat, Kyle. I think the first thing to do is if somebody's in that area, we've got to go and do some testing to say, okay, have you, are you Moby free or have you got Moby sheep in your flock? If you've got Moby, you know, if you've got a flock of 20 animals and you've got two or three that are Moby positive, Obviously, we'd want you to get rid of those animals and make sure, and then retest your flock, make sure you're mobile free. Once you're mobile free, then you've got to follow those protocols of biosecurity, which are in the man love paper. Um, you know, any new sheep coming in, make sure they're tested, make sure they're mobile free. Um, you don't bring a ram in from another herd that's untested to breed your other, to breed your ewes. So there are some semantics around what people can and can't do. And obviously, in a high risk zone, you're going to have to undertake a little more due diligence to make sure you can maintain that mobile free status. Um, and then, you know, Helen's a big proponent of electric fence without riggers. Um, guardian dogs are another one. Um, put some of those other mitigation tools we can potentially keep those wild sheep away from those flocks. Even though they may be mobile free, we still want to have that extra insurance. In so those are the tools that we'd be looking to use in, in a situation like that. When you get into a medium risk, I still think we should be looking at testing. We still need to know what's on the landscape, just in case you have a wandering ram coming there. And if you are Moby free, then it's not a death sentence for that ram coming in. But if you're in a medium risk area and you're Moby positive and that ram comes in there, then we should be requesting the COs to go shoot that ram immediately before it gets back to the main population. So those types of things are critical so i think high and medium risk we should be first and foremost be looking at testing know what's there 
know the prevalence, and then we start to pull those other, use those other tools and brochures. So it's, it's been mentioned a few times about testing. What's involved in the testing and how long does it take to get results? So in the testing, it's, I mean, let's draw another parallel again with COVID, right? It's a nasal swab that goes deep into the nasal cavity. They do both, both nostrils deep in, goes back in a vial. We send it to the lab in Abbotsford. And usually the turnaround is two to three weeks, depending on how many samples they've got in there. So in about a two-week period, you're going to know whether you're whether you've got any positive sheep in there. So um, I think it's about thirty-five dollars to get the test done, and it's five bucks for the actual swab kit. So if you're comfortable doing your swabs, um, then you'd be able to do them yourself. Um, obviously, we've had you know some people certain areas doing swabs for us on domestic farms and we've done some stuff with 4-H where we swabbed some of their sheep and got results back um, and again it's just an education thing right the biggest thing around whenever you try and present something new there's always that fear factor so if we can remove the fear and the cumbrance and people don't think it's a cumbrance on them then Oh, okay. Well, that's not a big deal. I can I can do that. I'd like to know that I'm going to be safe and I'm not killing wild sheep. So the testing is quick to do. Results are relatively quick, and it's cost effective. Exactly. Yeah. Totally, Steve. So, Chris, let's just back the bus up a little bit here. What we talked about the domestic producers. Um, what, so what's wild sheep's policy on this? Is Wild Sheep Society BC against domestic producers? Because I've heard that before. I've heard domestic producers say they feel like we've attacked them or we, you know, we don't we don't want them around. What what's Wild Sheep Society BC's policy when it comes to domestic producers? Uh, I, you know, I've taken the same view as Kevin. We can both coexist on the landscape. Um, so it's just a matter of you have to get into that. There's certain and I'm not quite sure there's some producers that are still hanging on to that they don't think this is an issue, they're not buying into the science, but yet there's other producers, you know, we've had, we had one producer reach out that lost her lamb crop to Movi and domestic sheep. And she reached out to us, a wild sheep NGO, what can I do for my domestic sheep? Um, so we, you know, there's producers out there that wanna make sure they're Movi free. You know, we've got two producers there that we're looking at um, potentially as a, as a, what Kevin touched on was that science-based component is can we treat um, domestic sheep with an antibiotic without having to cull those sheep if they're mobile positive. Again, we still haven't been able to complete those trials because COVID came along and kind of stalled it. So hopefully later this fall, we'll be able to do that, that's, that science-based component on two farms and if it works um you know that's pretty exciting news but the drug they use um you can't use it in the states you can only use it in canada right now so there's some nuances with the drug that we're using too so again it'll have to be sorted out so i guess that's one of the things with um you know the domestic producers is that you know we do support the wild sheep society bc does support uh a healthy um, uh, industry. We want to see them prosper as well. Um, and I've heard some people concerned that they have a hobby farm and they have maybe one or two sheep and they're both Moby infected. And now you come in and you test them. And ideally you want to call them or something like that. So, 
you know, and now it's someone's private property and their private, uh, private land. So there's concerns there as well. But, uh, you know, that's where, you know, we certainly support um, the industry. We want to see, and we respect people's private property, but we want to see provisions in place that we're going to protect wild sheep. Um, we just need that separation, right? We have to find either protocols to separate them or make sure that the sheep in these high risk areas are healthy. Um, some way to determine that because we don't want to see these, these die offs is our big concern clearly. So. Yeah. And that's a definition I think is key with producers, Kyle, that they're larger and I, you know, I don't want to use a number. I have a number in my mind between a definition between a producer and a hobby farmer, but I mean, we've actually offered to help producers and try and actually, you know, one of the things we've said to ag, we can help support the industry, right? They have, and I have to apologize, I think it was 25,000 domestic sheep in the province. Um, I think the Domestic Sheep Federation only has, and I have to be careful here, but I think they have 125 members um, that represent that. Now those producers are gonna range in size from probably 20 animals to 500 animals to the largest producer in the province. But they only have, I think, potentially 10% of market share. So, you know, there's, to me, there's an opportunity that we can help promote the sheep industry if we can get the safe protocols in place. We can help promote that. We know our members are going to buy in. We, I mean, as hunters, we all use a wool product, right? What better way to say, you know what, is your wool wild sheep safe, for lack of a better word? You know, if you could get some Sitka or Patagonia, um, yeah, our world's wild sheep safe, or our meat is wild sheep safe, whatever, you know, again, I'm cautious using that term, it's one that we coined, um, but generally, that's that's what we're looking for, right? I mean, if you could go to a restaurant, so, you know, something similar to the tuna market, you know, when Ocean Wise came into play, right? That's, if we could do that and have restaurants in Vancouver say, okay, where's your lamb coming from? Is it, is it detrimental to wild sheep? That would be huge. Right. But then we're promoting the industry, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's part of this is working together, right? We want to find solutions where we both benefit, right? We want to see the wild sheep thrive. We want to see domestic producers thrive. And that's certainly high on our priority list. We, we certainly don't want to um, curtail the producers. We want to see them thriving as well. Right. So any solution we can do um, working together is, is obviously a win-win. So uh, but at the, at the same same point, here we are, and we've got another die-off starting, right? We've got two lambs. These baby lambs were put down. Um, they were obviously running around, and there's a picture of that on our website. Um, and we can maybe share that in the show notes here. But um, of a lamb that was running around with, uh, they were tested positive for MOV, and they... Uh, biologists, when they, they see animals that are affected by MOV, one of the most effective ways is to remove them from the herd um, because the problem is, is it can uh, infect the entire herd and continue to um, cause a larger die-off. So um, we just had this in Vassal Lake. So it's just two animals. So why do we care? Why do we care? Why are we so concerned? And why are we worked up again with this, this minor die-off with just two lambs? What's the issue there, Chris? So the issue with that is, is usually lambs usually get it from their from their moms, right? So it's usually a shedder mom that's passing it on to those lambs. So if those lambs are dying and they've got it, potentially 
it's in the adults. And if it's in the adults, it may not be killing them, but then we've lost our lamb crop. So in Vassa already, I talked to Andrew this week, we've lost all of those lambs in Vassa. We know we've got some sick sheep in Penelis. Um, they haven't tested any of those sheep yet, but they have collared and tested some of those ewes in the Vassar herd area. So, you know, once we get those results back, it'll be interesting to see if the Amovi is in those adult sheep. If it's just in the lamb crop, I think that's going to be a really subtle nuance that we've never seen before that a lamb potentially has had contact and then spread it through that whole lamb crop that's there. So it's, um, that's, that's the nuance there. So the results coming back are gonna be really critical for us. Okay, so I, I, I just, sorry Kyle, I just wanna step back a sec. I, I made a quick note when Chris said ocean-wise, it, it triggered something that Wild Sheep Society has in place. You've got the Wild Sheep Friendly Program, if one of you can speak on that. Yeah. Chris, yeah, I think, you know, that was something me and we, we talked about it before and um, it actually came out of us working with 4-H. Um, so as we move forward, we thought, well, when do we make a nuance of that from um, how do we get people that are on board? So obviously our first um, Wild Sheep Friendly was, um, was business was Ben Barakoff, uh, Canadian Wildlife Capture. So as we move forward with Wild Sheep Friendly, we could definitely apply that to a domestic producer if they're, you know, following those protocols. If they're in a high risk area or a medium risk area, they could follow those protocols and fall into that wild sheep friendly. Then it gives us the opportunity to promote them as well, right? So that's kind of that wild sheep friendly program. I'm gonna let you add a bit more to it, Kyle, because I know there's some nuances there, right? <clears throat> Yeah, um, well, the biggest thing is uh, the specific protocols that uh, individuals have to make to qualify for the Wild Sheep Friendly Program. But basically, the, the key is, is people that are taking steps. Um, and we currently don't have any domestic producers that um, have qualified for it. We have worked with some domestic producers that have done some great work. Um, they've gone through um, testing and there's been a, a number of treatments that have been done, which we talked about earlier. Again, COVID put the brakes on that. Um, so unfortunately there were some issues, um, ar around that because we couldn't get, um, the veterinarian, uh, Helen Schwanschel was doing the testing and she couldn't get out to do the testing, uh, retesting on these trials. So, um, it was potentially a land breaking, um, study for us, but, uh, we've had to put the brakes on it. So, um, again, science is evolving. We're catching up on it and on these treatments and seeing how we're doing, but, uh, you know, we are really keen to work with producers and they there will be some that would qualify for for wild sheep friendly but there are certain things there's testing that would have to be done um and then there's the biosecurity aspect um obviously if a lamb um, a number of sheep have been tested and they're uh, movie free and disease free and then you bring in a movie infected animal or an untested animal um, that destroys that biosecurity and and that whole flock is effectively um, potentially reinfected. So those are some of the issues that we run into, but we definitely, uh, it is an opportunity for producers to work with us and uh, the Wild Sheep Friendly is obviously a fantastic program for that. So um, yeah. Um, now, Chris, one thing I wanted to talk about was uh, moving forward um, with the producers is uh, is the 4-H work we're doing. Um, and what what's the What's the reason for that? And can talk a little bit about why that's so important to the Wild Sheep Society of BC. 
uh, it comes back to education again, Kyle, right? And, you know, with 4-H, we're educating the next generation of producers. Um, so, you know, as, as knowledge is gained, we want to be able to share that knowledge. So, you know, what better way to do it with 4-H kids? And they're the ones that are inquisitive and want to know about this and that. And so that's part of the reason we've done it. Um, 4-H hasn't had a lot of support either. So I think, you know, they get some support from the ministry. Uh, Minister Popham stepped up with some, some funding for 4-H last year. But we need to be looking at the big picture moving forward. So with 4-H, those, you know, we really focused on the IP as, as kind of our 4-H location and the show animals and how we can support the classes that those kids are in. Um, and even purchasing some of those lambs. And again, we use those lambs, those lamb purchases for Jurassic Classic for our board meeting dinners. Um, we've actually served it at our convention. Um, just to show our members that lamb is, you know, it's, it's a good fare. So, you know, again, if you've only got 10% of the market, you need that opportunity to me, what do they want to look at? Do they want to get 30% of the share of the market? That would be a good goal for me. If you can get 20% growth, that means you've more than doubled. Well, that's the numbers we can share with 4-H. Um, but I'm going to take, um, you know, Sabrina Larson has been the one that's been going to the IP and actually engaging at, at the IPE and, and having those kids and spending that whole weekend there talking to people, talking to other producers, talking to the kids. Um, and sponsoring those classes and really giving us a presence at the IP, which I think is another venue where we get into, I always say we're preaching to the converted for lack of a better word, when we talk to our members or other hunters. But when you're talking to the general public, that's an opportunity to get in front of, the, of another source of public where we wouldn't actually have any outreach or any interaction with. So I think there's over 100,000 people go through the IPE in that three-day weekend. So what better venue to educate the public as well as 4-H? Um, we're potentially saying, that, you know, we're not trying to use those kids. We want to educate those kids. We'd like to see that expanded. We'd like to come up with a package that we could share with 4-H throughout the province, which we're going to rely on ag to do that. That's something that's in our ag component to say that they can direct 4-HBC to say, yeah, now we'd like to have a little nuance or a program around the education on MOV and how these, you know, next generation farmers coming in are going to be aware of that, of the disease issue and our wild sheep populations. And, you know, we had a couple of essays done by some, some uh, 4-H members earlier this year, and we both, the winners of those essays both got a lambs. Um, they actually had their 4-H project already, unfortunately, but we ended up with an extra lamb to uh, just bring along, which was, which we, which we actually sponsored, right? We generated that um, connection uh, by buying a, a lamb earlier and uh, having a producer actually look after that ewe for a year. We pay a fee to have that ewe looked after and then she had two lambs this year and we gave them to the kids that gave us the best essay. So that's that 4-H nuance. So can you imagine if we had a program like that everywhere where we had an essay coming in around Moby from 4-H kids all over the province, um, you know, to grow the program. 
Yeah, and on top of that, I think um, through the IPE, it's, uh, uh, is it in Armstrong? Is that where it's located? Yeah, yeah. yeah so the IP is in Armstrong and we work with the Armstrong 4-H club. Um, and I think a number of, I think all their uh, lambs, that club did a Movi testing and was um, ensured all their lambs were Movi free. Am I correct in saying that? Just some of the lambs. I mean, basically when you get to 4-H, Kyle, is you're looking at um, most, some of those lambs are just gonna go to slaughter right away. Yeah, because it's just a source. Those those sheep or lambs have been raised um, healthy, and then they show they've got to have X fat on them. That the judges actually look at them, and so they they're really good quality lambs that those kids are producing. So um, basically, what we were looking at when we were trying to test the majority of those sheep for 4-H is just find out a prevalence of what's at the fair, um, regardless of whether they're positive or negative. It didn't really matter because some of those, most of those lambs went to slaughter uh, for meat purposes. So it's more, again, that education component, reducing that fear saying, oh, I've got to kill my sheep um, and knowing what's on the landscape. So it's a multi-serving tool by just testing those sheep. Um, it doesn't really matter ultimately whether they're positive or negative. Okay, sounds good. One thing I want to just segue to Chris is um, now, costs associated with MOV and disease and that sort of stuff. So, you know, we, you know, the quite often domestic producers will say to us, well, testing's expensive. Um, it's a burden. Um, and there are some, there is some pushback and I, I can understand in some capacity having to do, take these extra steps and these extra costs. Um, and I think there's, you know, some, a bit of a valid argument there, but Let's just contrast that and let's just talk about a little bit about our region three and region five Fraser River um, tests and, and unfortunately in removal in the, these cases as well of wild sheep and, and some of the costs associated with that and what Movi looks like on the landscape and the costs involved. Yeah, and I, you know, we've talked about that one too, Kyle, and um, I think I mentioned it to you as well, Steve, but I mean, the cost comparison trying to move Movi from wild sheep compared to domestic sheep was dramatically different. Um, so the Fraser River project, for people that aren't aware of it, is we underwent a prevalence um, study, um, not this year, the year before, so year ago, March. <clears throat> and the regional bios, so we worked with the regional bios to actually get this off. And then there was three partners or four partners involved. Um, in the original prevalence test, I think that one was like $85,000. Um, just to collar some sheep, actually it was more than that. I think the helicopter component, the sampling and volunteer time was 85, and then while she decided BC purchased the collars, which was $57,000 just to purchase the collars on those for those animals. So we put the collars out, we did the swabs, and I say we, the regional bios, they did all that work. We got those results back. Yeah, we have more on the landscape. So what the next steps were was okay. How do we, you know, can we clear Moby on a herd? And I, I'll just back it up one sec, Kyle. Just I think the partners are really critical. Um, Wild Sheep Society BC, um, Jurassic Classic, which you're involved with, was a huge funder. Midwest chapter of Wild Sheep Foundation, big supporter. Some HCTF funding. Um, I think I've covered most of them there. 
those are the key partners WSF jumped in this year. Um, but again, it's all NGO funding um, with in-kind from government, but it's in-kind from the regional bios. It's not government actually saying, hey, we have an issue. And, you know, Steve touched on the caribou thing earlier. Government stepped up at the last minute with caribou and look where they are right now with that. It's NGOs funding this stuff, the science right now. Um, so this year we went to that test and removal program and I think that was another hundred and was it 140,000 Kyle? I'm just trying to remember. Yeah, I think that's what it, the number, yeah. So just to do the prevalence and the removal, we're into 250, 270K um, on 45 animals. So the herd that we test, tested and removed, it was 45 sheep that they tested. 11 were positive, 11 were euthanized. Um, and hopefully we're gonna see that lamb recruitment this year come back to more than at least keep 11 on the landscape to replace the ones that were euthanized by removing those shedders that were positive. Um, the other big thing of that is some strain typing too. There's multiple strains of MOV out there. Some are more lethal and more virile, and some are less, don't have an impact, <clears throat> as much of an impact. Um, so the strain typing tells us, okay, we've only had one source of contact, or we've had two sources of contact, or three sources of contact, depending on if they've got different strains of serology. Um, so that information will come out of what we, what we do this year. Um, so, you know, that's where we are right now. We're going to see what year three brings. Uh, the regional bios want to do a herd just south of the one that we treated this year. They want to do another treatment um, south, closer towards Lillooet, which would give us um, basically the west side of the Fraser River from Lillooet north. It's potentially moldy free if this works, or reduction in it still doesn't stop any sheep crossing that river. It doesn't stop a domestic producer coming in and shooting putting sheep right smack dab in the middle of the sheep. Um, and then you get onto the domestic side, trying to remove it out of the flock. You know, like I said, we talked about the test. It's five bucks, it's 35 bucks to get the results back. Um, you know, if the treatment things work and the drug, we can use the drug, then that's one nuance. Um, to treat animals, I think with, with the drug is fairly inexpensive. I think it's around five to 10 bucks a sheep. Again, that's a bit onerous on them to do what they're doing, but those are the components. So you start to use those figures. It's $250,000 to treat 45 animals and take 45 domestic sheep. Testing components are the same, but if you're using the drug to treat them, or even if you did get down to culling five animals at 250 to 350 bucks an hour, depending on that animal, you know, to replace it. Um, the numbers just don't jive in, in that sense, right? Yeah, absolutely, Chris. Um, so just, you know, obviously we have this problem with domestic and wild sheep and uh, we want to do the right thing. We know domestic producers would like to see a solution as well you know, what can we do? What's, what, what do we need? What's the, you know, there's no, I've, I've heard Gray Thornton from the Wild Sheep Foundation say this several times around in, in Movi there, there is no silver bullet, but you know, what are our next steps? Where do we go from here? I think the biggest thing for ag is, you know, is if we can get ag to do 
put some policy and regulation in place and around that idea. And I'm thinking of the high, medium, low-risk zones. Um, try to look at that, help producers out if we're dealing with a large-scale producer. Again, that's going to be a different situation, but we're going to have to rely on on ag to help us drive that bus, right? We've done as much, like I said, we started off with Flinrow 20 some years ago. Um, Tom Ethier was in Penticton at the last Vassal die off. We went to Victoria, was the director of Fish and Wildlife. We moved up, um, up the chain fairly high in Flinrow and now has been transferred over to ag as the ADM. So Tom is a very educated on the disease issue, he's gone into ag. I'm really hoping that Tom is gonna help finish putting us over the edge that we end up with policy or regulation or whatever that may be or whatever that nuance looks like to get us there that we can have something in place to help save our sheep. Okay. There we go. Forgot to take myself off and mute. <laughs> We, we've got some wins when it comes to disease transmission with government. We've seen in the last couple of years that uh, government has put in restrictions that you can't hunt with aid of uh, a goat or a sheep or a camel that is a pack animal. This year we've seen region four uh, get rid of any baiting for ungulates there to stop chronic wasting disease from getting into the area. Because as we know, it's last I heard 15 short miles away from the sea border. So, with they're, they're, they're still not doing too much when it comes to, to Movi, and that's why we're, we're going to send out an SOS starting tomorrow. If uh, Kyle, that's something you can speak on pretty, pretty uh, expertly, I'd say, in the line of work you're in when it comes to SOSs and sending out calls. So, I'll let you speak on this. Yeah, for sure, Steve. So, you know. As you know, the Wild Sheep Society BC has been at the table. Um, we're part of the um, uh, sheep separation program uh, led by Jeremy Ayotte. Uh, we've been sitting at the table with domestic producers and, um, you know, we, we truly believe that they do want to find a solution. Uh, we've met with the Minister of Agriculture and uh, Minister Popham has been fantastic in her support uh, for us. But the frustrating thing is nothing's happened. Um, we haven't had a breakthrough. Um, we haven't had any commitment um, from agriculture or any policy or any framework um, to deal with this issue. So, um, you know, with this recent Vassal Lake event, we, we've got another disease event in BC. And at some point, it's going to be the big one. There's going to be a mass die-off. Um, we've had them recently in the 1990s. We've seen it in uh, the Fraser River uh, ecosystem. Um, and if you can imagine, uh, the stone sheep in northern BC are quite congruous, right? They're a big group of sheep and they're all kind of tied together. They're highly mobile. They're not fragmented like in southern BC. So if our northern BC uh, sheep got infected, um, it could be devastating. We could lose literally thousands of those sheep. And uh, we, again, you know, back to what Kevin referred to earlier by Dr. Uh, Sinjin's study there that we have the one true stone sheep population in the world. So we have a responsibility to protect those sheep. So, um, you know, we're asking our membership to support uh, leaning on our government. Um, and uh, we're starting a program um, on Monday, August 17th called Save Our Sheep. And this is a province-wide campaign. And basically it's an engagement opportunity to reach out to your local representative 
uh, we're asking you to basically do two things. We want you to contact your local MLA and we want you to raise your concerns about um, wild sheep and the lack of legislation and, and protection for wild sheep in the province. Um, so that's st step one. And then step two is we're going to ask you to write three letters. We put three form letters on our, our website and uh, we'll distribute this via social media as well. And there's one to your local MLA. You'll have to do the heavy lifting and figure out who that is, get their information. Um, but we have the letter prepared for you. And then we have a letter prepared to the Minister of Agriculture. And we have a letter prepared to the Premier of British Columbia. And we want you to send all three letters. We've got 950 members. We'd like to see every single one of you do that. And we're going to ask for other organizations, wildlife conservation groups in BC to step up and support this as well. And basically what we're doing is we're going to ask for the... Um, provincial government ag to support a, um, a strategy to protect the wild sheep of British Columbia. And what we're looking for is a policy framework that's going to support um, support wild sheep and uh, as well as certainly respect the needs of the domestic producer. So um, we're asking our members to get involved. Um, we are going to send out a, a mass email around this and um, make a meeting with your uh, elected official get in touch with them and sit down and raise your concerns we have talking points again on our website it's on uh, if you go to the page of our website it's wildsheepsociety.com forward slash help h-e-l-p so wildsheepsociety.com slash help and uh, you'll find a comprehensive package there on what we're asking you to do and uh, really it's the two things that we'd love to see and ideally, if you have the wherewithal, we'd love to also see you reach out to your elected official, uh, or sorry, your local newspaper and uh, consider writing an editorial. Again, we're giving you talking points to raise um, and we're encouraging the government to sit down with us like they are now. We're sitting, we're currently at the table with the Ministry of Ag and um, the domestic producers working on this framework. But what we wanna do is push this along. We've been sitting there, we asked this in April of 2018 and we've been at the table and there's still been no legislation. So um, we're asking you to up the, um, up the ante, get your um, local MLA involved, let them know how important wild sheep and wildlife are to in British Columbia, uh, because the last thing we wanna see is another mass die off. Um, these two baby lambs that they had to put down in the South Okanagan, um, it's, it's just disheartening. And it's one of those things where if we put these prevention strategies in place, we have a good chance of stopping that. There's really no reason there should be another die-off. So um, that's the goal of uh, Save Our Sheep. That we're sending out an SOS and we're asking for your help to do that. So that's kind of an overview. Um, and, um, and that's kind of where we're sitting right now. And we're just asking for the support of all our members and, and any other concerned citizens that like seeing wild sheep on the landscape. So. Yeah, don't hesitate to reach out to Kyle, myself, Chris, or even message our Facebook page and say, hey, I need a little bit of help. I don't quite get it or I want a little bit more and share and interact that way it hits your social media feed as well. Uh, this campaign will be going out to media quite heavily as uh, you might have seen Chris was all over the news the last week. Media is interested. Media has asked us to keep them updated. So the stronger our voice is on the social media platforms, the stronger our voice can be to government. So we're looking forward to your support and thankful for it. Fantastic, Steve. Chris, do you have any uh, parting words on, on the campaign or anything to add there? No, I think it's uh, been a great effort from both you and Steve, just trying to you know, compile this 
together and just that direction. Obviously, all three of us have been talking for the last, um, you know, we started talking about this prior to us going away in mid-July before this um, disease event started. Um, just about ramping up our social media and our contact component. So um, my house off to you guys. I think I just wanted to flip back to the cow. We didn't really jump about our, um, about our stone sheep in that gar order. So the gar order just covers the crown land component. Um, but again, you just touched on if we have a disease event in our stone sheep, it's going to be devastating. So um, I said earlier, you know, in the interview, you know, when we were talking in the, in the Zoom cast about stone sheep were almost our low hanging fruit, but really that should be BC's due diligence component globally to make sure that that is front and center. Um, you know, caribou are throughout, you know, they're in Sweden, Finland, throughout the rest of Canada. Stone sheep aren't. Stone sheep are in BC. So the government, however they want to tie this in, need to be protecting our stone sheep. We need to be protecting their habitat and we need to be protecting them from risk of contact. Um, so that's, you know, because it's kind of geographically removed. Um, but one thing we are seeing is, you know, um, Kevin was talking about how the nuances of each jurisdiction have done certain things. Northwest Territories brought something in that there is no domestic sheep or goats west of the Mackenzie River. So basically they've taken steps to make sure that their dull sheep and their dull sheep range in Northwest Territories is safe from domestic contact and a disease event. The Yukon brought in an order where they were, um, they test and anything positive, um, those sheep are supposed to get culled because there's a time lapse between the testing component and when they get rid of those sheep or whether they're supposed to be culled or whatever. So what's happening is some of those Moby positive animals, goats and sheep are coming into BC. Um, there's some goats that actually ended up in Southern BC from the Yukon. So the Yukon did something proactive, but they left a little loophole that produces or the people that have those animals coming south into BC. If those end up staying somewhere north, it could be catastrophic because we already know they're mobile positive. Um, and you know, when Ag's taking a, a proactive approach on this, they're actually um, putting something together, uh, you know, for that. But you know, those are again the nuances of how people work around certain things um, that are out on the landscape. So I think it's our stone sheep should be front and center. Our big horns, again, they have been front and center because of what's going on. And I think, you know, just a final point, if you want to document a large scale die off, I think there's about 4,500 sheep on the Fraser River ecosystem. There's 1,500 now. Um, that's almost 70%, right? Right there that have disappeared off the landscape. So it's the same as what Kevin's talking about in Hell's Canyon and other jurisdictions. So I think the significance is there that we need to be doing something. Yeah, good point, Chris. And um, so just for our listeners, there's something that pay attention to what Chris said there. Chris said that the Yukon um, has disallowed infected animals from being brought in. So um, we had a member contact me last week when uh, this stuff came off with the Vassal Lake and they said there was an individual that went to the Yukon and they brought, I think it was llamas, um, I'm not sure if it was llamas or goats in and they were tested and they were Moby positive. 
So they wouldn't let them in. So they kicked them out and they sent them down and they're now in the lower mainland and, uh, goats. It was a, yeah. So, um, so interesting enough, our government is allowing that our government is putting our wild sheep at risk, allowing these animals. Meanwhile, another jurisdiction won't let them in. So the interesting thing to note here is BC, um, you know, in the wild sheep community, I know the wild sheep foundations always said that BC, um, was one of the leaders when it came to conservation and, and dealing with disease and that sort of stuff. Yukon just kicked our butt. Yukon has taken, uh, went from here to here and we're still down here and we haven't done anything. And that's why we're upping the rhetoric around this and, and our concern regarding this and why we're doing the save our sheep uh, campaign is because we've fallen below the grade here and we need to be more proactive. Um, things like that, um, bringing movie infected animals into the province can be um, prevented by our government. There's no reason why they can't put a policy in place for that. Um, and the Yukon's doing it and we've fallen behind there. So, and then I just want to segue back to that gar order. So um, we talked about our Northern stone sheep and Chris raised that. And that's another concern. And we we're asking to reach out to the Ministry of Agriculture and that doesn't concern the government action regulation order that we're talking about. That's a Northern BC region and that's actually under Flynn Rose um, jurisdiction. But basically what they've done is they've taken, uh, it was written back in 2018 and it was a government action regulation order that basically asked for three things. And I'll just share them quickly with you. Um, they they uh, allocated an area and um, was it 7A or 7B, Chris? Was it 7B? It started off actually in region six. Um, and then I think it's seven A is the northern region. Seven A the northern region? I was getting mixed up. I think seven B is seven A is Almanica. Steve should know. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's, I think it's seven B, right? So yeah. yeah. So regardless, um, this government action regulation was written and basically what it said, it was three things that were the use of domestic sheep, goats, or camelids is prohibited on range tenures in range tenure agreements and for vegetation management, silviculture treatment within the thin horn sheep specified area. So that's six and seven B. Um, salt or mineral supplement blocks placed within thin horn sheep specified area will be in an unused condition. Basically they need a new one and may not be disposed predisposed to contact with domestic sheep, goats, or camelids, and hay and feed, the same thing, basically, right? So a pretty generic scenario, um, and one that would have had a very positive effect for our, our northern wild sheep, for our, our stone sheep. Um, but what, what, why isn't it in place, Chris? What's going on? Why, why isn't that, that? That was two years ago. What's happening? So in Region 6, um, it was, like I said, you were exactly right on the money. It was supposed to be signed cross-border. We didn't think there were any issues with it. Region 6, regional manager signed off on it. It came to 7B, and the regional manager didn't sign off on it. He didn't want to sign off on it. Now, I'm not sure of all the reasons, so I'll be cautious on how I word why he didn't want to sign off on it. Um, he thought there may be some limiting factors there. And in our mind, is what could be more important than preventing a disease event in the, in the thin horn sheep in the global in a global scenario, um, so I, whatever reason he didn't want to sign off, I do not believe it should be trumping that gar order. That gar order should be signed and be in place in Region Seven B right now. And I think that you know there's a nuance. You know we've been talking about ag and Minister Popham. At least said she's been fantastic to deal with. That. 
here's an opportunity for Flinro, and where is Minister Donaldson stepping up and saying, why is that guard not been signed and put in place in Region 7B to protect those Finhorn sheep? So, you know, if, if we wanted to have a really strong worded letter to Flinro to really apply some pressure to Minister Donaldson to say, why are one of your when is one of your managers not following suit and really realizing what it, what's happening on the landscape, regardless of whether you're more interested in forestry mining or whatever that may be. But I'm obviously familiar with forestry, but I, 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 I'm at a loss for words why, what would trump that signature? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's some of the challenges we're facing um, as the Wild Sheep Society of BC. Some of the things that we're concerned about and the things that we've been seeing happening um at a government level that you know we feel it, it it's uh pretty transparent it's um you know these uh, a plan that's in place that would protect our our um stone sheep and uh, just an opportunity for the government to step up and make a real difference for wildlife instead of getting in a scenario where we are now with our mountain caribou with our northern caribou situation where we're facing extirpation and certainly in the south on uh, on caribou and and now the northern populations are at risk as well so um you know we obviously don't want to see our wild sheep go there we're, we're doing what we can as an ngo and we just feel that um the government has to find a way to step up to put these policies in place to protect our wild sheep and that's where we're asking for the support of our membership through our save our sheep campaign so uh we're basically, this is a call to action for our members to gather together, um, get your family members, anyone that cares about wildlife. And if you like seeing wildlife on the landscape, whether you're a hunter, whether you're a non-hunter, whether you're a vegan, if you like seeing a wild sheep when you drive through the, the Rockies and you wanna see them there 10 years from now, you need to act. You need to get involved, um, go to our website, wildsheepsociety.com forward slash help and uh, there's a, a complete package there on what needs to be done and we're asking for the support of our membership uh, other ngos across the province that care about uh, wildlife and just the general population as well um, so that's kind of where we're at right now do you have anything last words uh, steve or chris before we sign off no all good just appreciate everybody watching listening and uh, stepping up and um, what we'll do is uh, for the three, first three people that actually meet with their MLA and let us know about it, we'll send them some free Wild Sheep Society BC swag. We'll send you a hat or a t-shirt, whatever your choice. So uh, let us know um, once you've got your meeting with your MLA. More than likely, they're not going to meet with you one-on-one -on -one because of COVID right now, um, but they'll probably meet you with you via Skype or Zoom. And that's fine. You can get your meet, uh, message across. But for the first three people that get in touch with us, uh, that have a meeting with their MLA, we'll send you some swag and uh, hopefully we can get 900 members or 950 members making the phone calls, getting these meetings and sending these letters out. And if uh, the government gets a thousand letters, they're going to pay attention. Uh, they're going to have to do something. So let's all rally together and uh, work on saving our wild sheep of British Columbia. So with that, I want to thank you gentlemen both. Um, I wish you a wonderful Sunday afternoon. I appreciate you taking a couple hours to sit down and address this important issue with us. So. Yep, thanks, Cal. I was just going to say that, you know, whatever we do for wild sheep, the kind of that indicator species, whatever we do for wild sheep helps mule deer, moose, elk, all those other species. So if you're not a sheep person or a sheep guy or not interested in sheeping, well, it doesn't really 
make any difference to me? It does. Sheep will benefit those other species. So just keep that in the back of your mind as well, that it's not just, um, you know, we are very sheep centric and sheep focused, but it's a big picture when we come to it. And it, it really helps all those other species as well. But um, I'd like to thank you guys for the time and, and Kevin as well. It was a great afternoon. Well, well worth the top, great topic and discussion. Fantastic. Thanks guys. Have a great weekend and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you.